Section four of the Golden Spears and Other Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Jones. The Golden Spears and Other Fairy Tales by Edmund Leamy. The Huntsman's Son. A long, long time ago, there lived in a little hut on the borders of a great forest a huntsman and his wife and son. From his earliest years, the boy, whose name was Fergus, used to hunt with his father in the forest. And he grew up strong and active, sure and swift-footed as a deer, and as free and fearless as the wind. He was tall and handsome, as supple as a mountain ash. His lips were as red as its berries. His eyes were as blue as the skies in spring, and his hair fell down over his shoulders like a shower of gold. His heart was as light as a bird's, and no bird was fonder of green woods and waving branches. He had lived since his birth in the hut in the forest, and had never wished to leave it, until one winter's night a wandering minstrel sought shelter there, and paid for his night's lodging with songs of love and battle. Ever since that night Fergus pined for another life. He no longer found joy in the music of the hounds or in the cries of the huntsmen in forest glades. He yearned for the chance of battle and the clang of shields, and the fierce shouts of fighting warriors. And he spent all his spare hours practicing on the harp and learning the use of arms, for in those days the bravest warriors were also bards. In this way the spring and summer and autumn passed. And when the winter came again, it chanced that on a stormy night, when thunder was rattling through the forest, smiting the huge oaks and hurling them crashing to the earth, Fergus lay awake, thinking of his present lot, and wondering what the future might have in store for him. The lightning was playing around the hut, and every now and then a flash brightened up the interior. After a peal, louder than any which had preceded it, Fergus heard three loud knocks at the door. He called out to his parents that someone was knocking. "'If that is so,' said his father, "'open at once. This is no night to keep a poor wanderer outside our door.' Fergus did as he was bidden, and as he opened the door, a flash of lightning showed him, standing at the threshold, a little wizened old man with a small harp under his arm. "'Come in and welcome,' said Fergus, and the little man stepped into the room. "'It is a wild night, neighbors," said he. "'It is indeed a wild night,' said the huntsman and his wife, who had got up and dressed themselves. "'And sorry we are, we have no better shelter or better fare to offer you, but we give you the best we have.' "'A king cannot do more than his best,' said the little man. The huntsman's wife lit the fire, and soon the pine logs flashed up into a blaze and made the hut bright and warm. She then brought forth a peggin of milk and a cake of barley bread. "'You must be hungry, sir,' she said. "'Hungry I am,' said he. "'But I wouldn't ask for better fare than this if I were in the king's palace.' "'Thank you kindly, sir,' said she. "'And I hope you will eat enough, and that will do you good.' "'And while you are eating your supper,' said the huntsman, "'I'll make you a bed of fresh rushes.' "'Don't put yourself to that trouble,' said the little man. "'When I have done my supper, I'll lie down here by the fire, if it is pleasing to you, "'and I'll sleep like a top till morning.' And now go back to your beds, and leave me to myself, and maybe sometime, when you won't be expecting it, I'll do a good turn for your kindness to the poor wayfarer. Oh, it's no kindness at all, said the huntsman's wife. It would be a queer thing if an Irish cabin would not give shelter and welcome in a wild night like this. So good night now, and we hope you will sleep well. Good night, said the little man, and may you and yours never sup sorrow until your dying day. The huntsman and his wife and Fergus then went back to their beds, and the little man, having finished his supper, curled himself up by the fire, and was soon fast asleep. About an hour after, a loud clap of thunder awakened Fergus, and before it had died away, 
he heard three knocks at the door. He aroused his parents and told them. Get up at once, said his mother. This is no night to keep a stranger outside our door. Fergus rose and opened the door, and a flash of lightning showed him a little old woman, with a shuttle in her hand, standing outside. Come in and welcome, said he, and the little old woman stepped into the room. Blessings be upon them who give welcome to a wanderer on a wild night like this, said the old woman. And who wouldn't give welcome on a night like this, said the huntsman's wife, coming forward with a peggin of milk and a barley cake in her hand. And sorry we are that we have not better fare to offer you. Enough is as good as a feast, said the little woman, and now go back to your beds and leave me to myself. Not till I shake down a bed of rushes for you, said the huntsman's wife. Don't mind the rushes, said the little woman. Go back to your beds. I'll sleep here by the fire. The huntsman's wife went to bed, and the little old woman, having eaten her supper, lay down by the fire and was soon fast asleep. About an hour later, another clap of thunder startled Fergus. Again, he heard three knocks at the door. He roused his parents, but he did not wait for orders from them. He opened the door, and a flash of lightning showed him outside the threshold a low-sized, shaggy, wild-looking horse. And Fergus knew it was the Puka, the wild horse of the mountains. Bold as Fergus was, his heart beat quickly as he saw fire issuing from the Puka's nostrils. But, banishing fear, he cried out, "'Come in and welcome!' "'Welcome you are,' said the huntsman, "'and sorry we are that we have not better shelter or fare to offer you.' I couldn't wish a better welcome, said the puka, as he came over near the fire and sat down on his haunches. Maybe you would like a little bit of this, Master Puka, said the huntsman's wife as she offered him a barley cake. I never tasted anything sweeter in my life, says the puka, crunching it between his teeth. And now if you can give me a sup of milk, I'll want for nothing. The huntsman's wife brought him a peg of milk. When he had drunk it, now, says the puka, go back to your beds, and I'll curl myself up by the fire and sleep like a top till morning and soon everybody in the hut was fast asleep. When the morning came, the storm had gone, and the sun was shining through the windows of the hut. At the song of the lark, Fergus got up, and no one in the world was ever more surprised than he when he saw no sign of the little old man, or the little old woman, or the wild horse of the mountains. His parents were also surprised, and they all thought that they must have been dreaming, until they saw the empty peggins around the fire, and some pieces of broken bread. And they did not know what to think of it at all. From that day forward, the desire grew stronger in the heart of Fergus for a change of life, and one day he told his parents that he was resolved to seek his fortune. He said he wished to be a soldier, and that he would set out for the king's palace and try to join the ranks of the Fenny. About a week afterwards, he took leave of his parents, and having received their blessing, he struck out for the road that led to the palace of the High King of Erin. The manly figure of Fergus, his gallant bearing, and handsome face all told in his favor. But before he could be received into the Fenian ranks, he had to prove that he could play the harp like a bard, that he could contend with staff and shield against nine Fenian warriors, that he could run with plaited hair through the tangled forest without loosening a single hair, and that in his course he could jump over trees as high as his head and stoop under trees as low as his knee, and that he could run so lightly that the rotten twigs should not break under his feet. Fergus proved equal to all the tests thanks to the wandering minstrel who taught him the use of the harp, to his own brave heart, and to his forest training. He was enrolled in the second battalion of the Fenny, and before long he was its bravest and ablest champion. At that very time it happened that the niece of the High King of Erin was staying with the king and queen in their palace at Tara. The princess was the loveliest lady in all the land. She was as proud as she was beautiful. 
the princes and chieftains of Erin in vain sought her hand in marriage. From Alba and Spain and the far-off isles of Greece, kings came to woo her. From the northern lands came vikings in stately galleys with brazen prows, whose oarsmen tore the white foam from the emerald seas as they swept toward the Irish coasts. But the lady had vowed she would wed with no one except a battle champion who could excel in music the chief bard of the high king of Erin, who could outstrip on his steed in the great race of Tara the white steed of the plains, and who could give her as a wedding robe a garment of all the colors of the rainbow, so finely spun that when folded up it would fit in the palm of her small white hand. To fulfill these three conditions was impossible for all her suitors, and it seemed as if the loveliest lady of the land would go unmarried to her grave. It chanced that once, on a day when the Fenian battalions were engaged in a hurling match, Fergus beheld the lady watching the match from her sunny bower. He no sooner saw her than he fell over head and ears in love with her, and he thought of her by night, and he thought of her by day, and believing that his love was hopeless, he often wished he had never left his forest home. The great fair of Tara was coming on, and all the Fenny were busy from morning till night, practicing feats of arms and games, in order to take part in the contests to be held during the fair. And Fergus, knowing that the princess would be present, determined to do his best to win the prizes which were to be contended for before the lady's eyes. The fair began on the first of August, but for a whole week before the five great roads of Erin were thronged with people of all sorts, princes and warriors on their steeds battle champions in their chariots, harpers in hundreds, smiths with gleaming spears and shields and harness, for battle steeds and chariots, troops of men and boys leading racehorses, jewelers with gold drinking horns and brooches and pins and earrings and costly gems of all kinds, chessmen boards of silver and gold, and golden and silver chessmen and bags of woven brass, dyers with their many-colored fabrics, bands of jugglers, drovers goading on herds of cattle, shepherds driving their sheep, huntsmen with spoils of the chase, dwellers in the lakes or by the fish-abounding rivers with salmon and speckled trout, and countless numbers of peasants on horseback and on foot, all wending their way to the great meeting-place by the mound, which a thousand years before had been raised over the grave of the great queen, for there the fair was to be held. On the opening day the high king, attended by the four kings of Erin, set out from the palace, and with them went the queen and the ladies of the court in sparkling chariots. The princess rode in the chariot with the high queen, under an awning made of the wings of birds, to protect them from the rays of the sun. Following the queen were the court ladies in other chariots, under awnings of purple or of yellow silk. Then came the Brehens, the great judges of the land, and the chief bards of the high court of Tara and the druids, crowned with oak leaves, and carrying wands of divination in their hands. When the royal party reached the ground, it took its place in enclosures right up against the monumental mound. The high king sat with the four kings of Erin, all wearing their golden helmets, for they wore their diadems in battle only. In an enclosure next to the kings sat the queen and the princess and all the ladies of the court. At either side of the royal pavilions were others for the dames and ladies and nobles and chiefs of different degrees forming part of a circle on the plain, and the stands and benches for the people were so arranged as to complete the circle, and in the round green space within it, so that all might hear and see, the contests were to take place. At a signal from the king, who was greeted with a thunderous cheer, the heralds rode round the circle, and having struck their sounding shields three times with their swords, they made a solemn proclamation of peace. Then was sung the 
by all the assembled bards to the accompaniment of their harps the chant in honor of the mighty dead when this was ended again the heralds struck their shields and the contests began the first contest was the contest of spear-throwing between the champions of the seven battalions of the Feni. When the seven champions took their places in front of the royal enclosure, everyone, even the proud princess, was struck by the manly beauty and noble bearing of Fergus. The champions poised their spears, and at a stroke from the heralds upon their shields, the seven spears sped flashing through the air. They all struck the ground, shafts up and it was seen that two were standing side by side in advance of the rest. One belonged to Fergus, the other to the great chief Oscar. The contest for the prize then lay between Oscar and Fergus, and when they stood in front of the king, holding their spears aloft, every heart was throbbing with excitement. Once more the heralds struck their shields, and, swifter than the lightning's flash, forth went the spears, and when Fergus's spear was seen shivering in the ground a full length ahead of the great chief Oscar's, the air was shaken by a wild cheer that was heard far beyond the plains of Tara. And as Fergus approached the high king to receive the prize, the cheers were renewed. But Fergus thought more of the winsome glance of the princess than he did of the prize or the sounding cheers. And Princess Marine was almost sorry for her vow, for her heart was touched by the beauty of the Fenian champion. Other contests followed, and the day passed, and the night fell, and while the Fenian warriors were reveling in their camps, the heart of Fergus, victor as he was, was sad and low. He escaped from his companions and stole away to his native forest, for, when the heart is sick and sorest, there is balsam in the forest, there is balsam in the forest for its pain. And as he lay under the spreading branches, watching the stars glancing through the leaves and listening to the slumberous murmur of the waters, a strange peace came over him. But in the camp which he had left, and in the vast multitude on the plains of Tara, there was stir and revelry, the babbling speculation as to the contest of tomorrow, the contest which was to decide whether the chief bard of Aaron was to hold his own against all comers, or yield the palm. For rumor said that a great scald had come from the northern lands to compete with the Irish bard. At last, over the Fenian camp, and over the great plain and multitude that thronged it, sleep fell, clothing them with a silence as deep as that which dwelt in the forest, where, dreaming of the princess, Fergus lay. He awoke at the first notes of the birds, but though he felt he ought to go back to his companions and be witness of the contest which might determine whether the princess was to be another's bride, his great love and his utter despair of winning her so oppressed him that he lay as motionless as a broken reed. He scarcely heard the music of the birds, and paid no heed to the murmur of the brook rushing by his feet. The crackling of branches near him barely disturbed him, but when a shadow fell across his eyes, he looked up gloomily and saw, or thought he saw, someone standing before him. He started up, and who should he see but the little wizened old man who found shelter in his father's hut on a stormy night? This is a nice place for a battle champion to be. This is a nice place for you to be on the day which is to decide who will be successful suitor of the princess. What is it to me, said Fergus, who is to win her since I cannot? I told you, said the little man, the night you opened the door for me, that the time might come when I might be able to do a good turn for you and yours. The time has come. Take this harp, and my luck go with you, and in the contest of the bards today, You'll reap the reward of the kindness you did when you opened your door to the poor old wayfarer in the midnight storm. 
the little man handed his harp to fergus and disappeared as swiftly as the wind that passes through the leaves fergus concealing the harp under his silken cloak reached the camp before his comrades had aroused themselves from sleep at length the hour arrived when the great contest was to take place the king gave the signal and as the chief bard of erin was seen ascending the mound in front of the royal enclosures he was greeted with a roar of cheers but at the first note of his harp silence like that of night fell on the mighty gathering as he moved his fingers softly over the strings every heart was hushed filled with a sense of balmy rest the lark soaring and singing above his head paused mute and motionless in the still air and no sound was heard over the spacious plain save the dreamy music then the bard struck another key and the gentle sorrow possessed the hearts of his hearers and unbidden tears gathered to their eyes then with bolder hand he swept his fingers across his lyre and all hearts were moved to joy and pleasant laughter and eyes that had been dimmed by tears sparkled as brightly as running waters dancing in the sun when the last notes had died away a cheer arose loud as the voice of the storm in the glen when the live thunder is reveling on the mountain tops as soon as the bard had descended the mound the scald from the northern lands took his place greeted by cries of welcome from a hundred thousand throats he touched his harp and in the perfect silence was heard the strain of the mermaid's song and through it the pleasant ripple of summer waters on the pebbly beach then the theme changed and on the air was borne the measured sweep of countless oars and the swish of waters around the prows of contending galleys and the breezy voices of the sailors and the sea-birds cry then his theme was changed to the mirth and laughter of the banquet hall the clang of meeting drinking horns and songs of battle when the last strain ended from the mighty host a great shout went up loud as the roar of winter billows breaking in the hollows of the shore and men knew not whom to declare the victor the chief bard of erin or the scald of the northern lands in the height of the debate the cry arose that another competitor had ascended the mound and there standing in view of all was fergus the huntsman's son all eyes were fastened upon him but no one looked so eagerly as the princess he touched his harp with gentle fingers and a sound low and soft as a faint summer breeze passing through the forest trees stole out and then was heard the rustle of birds through the branches and the dreamy murmur of waters lost in deepest woods and all the fairy echoes whispering when the leaves are motionless in the noonday heat then followed notes cool and soft as the drip of summer showers on the parched grass and then the song of the blackbird sounding as clearly as it sounds in long silent spaces of the evening and then in one sweet jocund burst the multitudinous voices that hail the breaking of the morn and the lark singing and soaring above the minstrel sank mute and motionless upon his shoulder and from all the leafy woods the birds came thronging out and formed a fluttering canopy above his head when the bard ceased playing no shout arose from the mighty multitude for the strains of his harp long after its chords were stilled held their hearts spellbound and when he had passed away from the mound of contest all knew that there was no need to declare the victor and all were glad the comely fenian champion had maintained the supremacy of the bards of erin but there was one heart sad the heart of the princess and now she wished more than ever that she had never made her hateful vow other contests went on but fergus took no interest in them and once more he stole away to the forest glade his heart was sorrowful for he thought of the great race of the morning and he knew that he could not hope to compete with the rider of the white steed of the plains 
and as he lay beneath the spreading branches during the whole night long, his thoughts were not of the victory he had won, but of the princess, who was as far away from him as ever. He passed the night without sleep, and when the morning came, he rose and walked aimlessly through the woods. A deer, starting from a thicket, reminded him of the happy days of his boyhood, and once more the wish came back to him that he had never left his forest home. As his eyes followed the deer wistfully, suddenly he started in amazement. The deer vanished from view, and in his stead was the wild horse of the mountains. "'I told you I'd do you a good turn,' said the Puka, "'for the kindness you and yours did me on that wild winter's night. The day is passing. You have no time to lose. The white steed of the plains is coming to the starting post. Jump on my back, and remember, faint heart never won, fair lady.' In half a second Fergus was bestride the puka, whose coat of shaggy hair became at once as glossy as silk, and just at the very moment when the king was about to declare that there was no steed to compete with the white steed of the plains, the puka, with Fergus upon his back, galloped up in front of the royal enclosure. When the people saw the champion, a thunderous shout rose up that startled the birds in the skies and sent them flying to the groves and in the lady's enclosure was a rustle of many-coloured scarves waving in the air. At the striking of the shields, the contending steeds rushed from the post with the swiftness of a swallow's flight. But before the white steed of the plains had gone halfway round, Fergus and the wild horse of the mountains had passed the winning post, greeted by such cheers as had never before been heard on the plains of Tara. Fergus heard the cheers, but scarcely heeded them, for his heart went out through his eyes that were fastened on the princess, and a wild hope stirred him that his glance was not ungrateful to the loveliest lady in the land. And the princess was sad and sorry for her vow, for she believed that it was beyond the power of Fergus to bring her a robe of all the colors of the rainbow, so subtly woven as to fit in the palm of her soft white hand. That night also Fergus went to the forest not too sad, because there was a vague hope in his heart that had never been there before. He lay down under the branches, with his feet towards the rustling waters, and the smiles of the princess gilded his slumbers as the rays of the rising sun gild the glades of the forest. And when the morning came, he was scarcely surprised when before him appeared the little old woman with a shuttle he had welcomed on the winter's night. "'You think you have won her already,' said the little woman, "'and so you have too.' Her heart is all your own, and I'm half inclined to think that my trouble will be thrown away. For if you had never a wedding robe to give her, she'd rather have you this minute than all the kings of Erin, or than all the other princes and kings and chieftains in the whole world. But you and your father and mother were kind to me on a wild winter's night, and I'd never see your mother's son without a wedding robe fit for the greatest princess that ever set nations to battle for her beauty." So go and pluck me a handful of wild forest flowers, and I'll weave out of them a wedding robe with all the colors of the rainbow, and one that will be as sweet and fragrant as the ripe red lips of the princess herself. Fergus, with joyous heart, culled the flowers and brought them to the little old woman. In the twinkling of an eye she wove with her little shuttle a wedding robe with all the colors of the rainbow, as light as the fairy dew, as soft as the hand of the princess, as fragrant as her little red mouth, and so small that it would pass through the eye of a needle. "'Go now, Fergus,' said she, "'and may luck go with you, but in the days of your greatness and of the glory which will come to you when you are wedded to the princess, be as kind, and have as open a heart and as open a door for the poor as you, when you were only a poor huntsman's son.' Fergus took the robe and went towards Tara. 
it was the last day of the fair and all the contests were over and the bards were about to chant the farewell strange to the memory of the great queen but before the chief bard could ascend the mound fergus attended by a troop of fenian warriors on their steeds galloped into the enclosure and rode up in front of the queen's pavilion holding up the glancing and many-coloured robe he said o queen and king of erin i claim the princess for my bride you o king have decided that i have won the prize in the contest of the bards that i have won the prize in the race against the white steed of the plains it is for the princess to say if the robe which i give her will fit in the hollow of her small white hand yes said the king you are victor in the contests let the princess declare if you have fulfilled the last condition the princess took the robe from fergus closed her fingers over it so that no vestige of it was to be seen yes o king said she he has fulfilled the last condition but before ever he has fulfilled a single one of them my heart went out to the comely champion of the fenny i was willing then i am ready now to become the bride of the huntsman's son end of section four recording by joseph jones